I regret that when we lived in Scotland for three years and literally lived across the street from the 18th green of the old course that I never golfed once when they lived there for three years. In fact, there was 100 pounds, which is about 150 bucks at the time, I don't know what it is today, for a year pass as a student at the university, and I never once did it. And I kind of regret that. Now, if you'd seen my golf game, you might not regret me doing that at all. The course I grew up on was Sinisippi, which is a little different than the old course. But I am glad that our third year there, we spent 230 pounds, which for grad students was a whole lot of money, so that we could get a historic Scotland pass. And we went over the course of that 12 months to somewhere near 20 castles and cathedrals all over Scotland, from up in the Highlands, around Edinburgh, Glasgow, Aberdeen, you name it. And I'll never forget, we walked into the oldest cathedral in Glasgow, which is on the west coast of Scotland. And immediately when I walked in, these massive pillars, pillars that would take seven people holding hands to go around to be able to to cover the, the dimensions of these pillars that were holding up this cathedral. And I looked up these pillars and saw all of these markings that were there uh, of literally the, the surface or the face of the pillar had been damaged. And before the tour even started, I, I said to the tour guide, I said, what, what are those? markings all the way up, and, I, and I, I kind of walked over another 30 feet through another pillar, and you could see the same kind of markings. And all about every, all, every five feet or so up this pillar and all the way around, going up a good 40 or 50 feet were these markings. And the lady said to me, those were where the icons were, the various images. This started as a Catholic cathedral, and it turned into a Protestant one. But even before that transition happened, there was an absolute assault, almost like a castle. In fact, they showed us a door, an original door, at least original to the 1500s, that was in this protective case. And you could see like a musket bullet hole in the door heading to the priest's chambers when the Protestants charged in. And one of the first things they did was rip down all these icons of all the saints or of Mary or even of Jesus himself. And the markings from that were still on the wall and on the pillars that you could see when you walked in. Do you know why they did that? Because of the second commandment. That's why they did that. It's in the second commandment where God says that you shall not make a carved image or any likeness, no images, no idols. They shall not be used in worship. So for these Protestants, they saw those things as a direct disobedience to the second commandment. And before they did their onslaught and whatever damage or even murder they committed, which by the way was another commandment, before all that was all cleared up, they for sure tore down these icons and the remnant of that ripping off the walls could be seen to this day. As we work through the Ten Commandments, let me remind you that there's three things that these Ten Commandments reveal. This is just a general rule of thumb. This, 
But every commandment's going to say something about God's holiness. It's going to tell us about who God is. It's going to reveal something about humanity's brokenness, how we are wired in certain ways. We, are, we, we manufacture in our hearts idols to worship or other gods or murder or covetousness. We, we, those things are just brewing in our hearts, and it will let us know that so we can see that. So God, humanity, and third, it will always show us our need of Christ and how Christ not only fulfills but, but, but kind of helps us participate rightly in God's design for our worship of him and our existence in this world. So we're going to look at the second commandment today, and I'll give you up front. Here is, here's the thrust of it. If the first commandment is directing who we worship, then the second commandment is directing how we worship. It's that, it, it really is that straightforward. The first commandment deals with who. The second commandment deals with how. And before we look at the text and jump into it, let me just pray for us. Father, minister to your children this morning. Help us to rightly hear your word and to respond to it in our hearts and our minds, with our hands and our feet. Help us to see the wondrous things of your law. And not only to see you, Father, not only to see our own human nature and condition, but to see the beauty of Jesus who fulfills this commandment in his life and in his death and invites us to participate rightly through it with you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here, here would, here's what I would say is the meaning of Exodus 24 to 6, which is the commandment. The second commandment forbids any images of God, especially for the purpose of worship. Look with me at the text that Sue read for us just a few minutes ago, Exodus 20, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them. Notice the worship emphasis. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. When verse 4 prohibits the making of a carved image, it is speaking of something chiseled into some likeness. Ancient idols would most likely be made of wood or stone, and often added to it were some precious metals. The commandment is specifically prohibiting two things. The first part of verse 4 is prohibiting images of the, tr of the true God. There should be no image of God at all. The second part of verse 4 is prohibiting any images of false gods. Now, you might just ask the question, it's fair to ask, why are the images of God forbidden? Like, why does God not want us to do that? Not just of other gods, but even images of our God. Why are those images prohibited? Well, there's three reasons. One is that there is no likeness of God that could be accurate. We, we, what a beautiful song Greg chose for us this morning indescribable. Like you cannot describe him. 
There are not words that capture the fullness of who God is or hold it properly in its magnitude. Every representation of God would imprint some kind of misunderstanding. If we describe him as love without holiness, we misunderstand him. If we view him as a vengeful, hateful, prideful God, we, we miss then the nature of his love. If we tried to limit him and explain his power or his magnitude, is there a stone uh, God could make that would be too heavy for him to lift? We confuse one thing to explain another. There is no likeness that could be accurate. No one aspect of creation or human creatures encompasses God. Even his name. When God gave his name, he didn't even give a, give a name that is a description. He literally called himself I am. That's like saying, who are you? I just is. No, 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 who are you? Is is my name. I just exist. There's no description or qualification that I can give you that will encompass all that. There, there's no box big enough to hold who I am. So you can just call me I am, Exodus 3. Just call me I am, because God just is. God is entirely other. He's beyond our imaginations. He's beyond our grasp. And therefore, he is beyond our control. And the moment we begin to try to put some kind of bookends around God, we break the second commandment. He just is. He is, as we just sang, indescribable. That's one reason. No likeness of God could be accurate. Here's a second, and it really comes from Deuteronomy 4.12. When God revealed himself, right? So we're watching to see what God does. When God revealed himself, he did not show any form. He only gave a revelation of himself in words. Again, that's interesting. He didn't show a form. He only showed in words. As he slowly began to reveal himself in the Old Testament, he specifically said, I shall show you no form. There is no form that Moses could have said, well, this is who God is. He just revealed himself in words. And here's the third reason. This is part of God's grace. He knows us. No likeness of God could be accurate. Number one, God revealed himself in words and not form. Number two, and number three, human sin takes things it knows and sees and worships them. Like that's actually what Deuteronomy 4 is trying to say. The reason God did not just immediately give a form to his people is because he would know, he knew that they would use that as a form of worship and control. This cannot happen with God. God cannot be domesticated. He cannot be put on a shelf. He is not a decoration or a prize. He is other. He is indescribable. And that explains, by the way, verses 5 and 6. It begins with a warning. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Jealousy, by the way, is not God saying he's an emotional kind of reactionary, but that he is an exclusive God. Love doesn't share wife or a husband. It is exclusive. 
This covenant relationship is exclusive. There are no other gods for you, and they shall not be worshipped. And I am a loving father and husband, and I will not allow it. That's not some kind of rambling emotion. That's exclusivity. And that explains the, the, the rest of verse 5 and then 6, which feels a bit harsh. The iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generation, but steadfast love to thousands who love me. That's covenant language of cursing and blessing. That's just covenant language. That's just God saying, I'm in a covenant with you. I'm established a relationship with you. I'm an exclusive God. You shall fulfill this covenant with me in this way as I am. That is what you're commanded to do. So let's, let's get deeper in this. Secondly, the second commandment demands, what, we, we see what it forbids, any images of God, but, but what does it demand then? Like, what's this look like? It demands proper worship of God with our mind and body. And I want to flesh that out. How we think about God and direct people to worship God is really, really important. And you should hope that your elders and pastors and your church are rightly directing us to worship God as he expects to be worshiped. If I were to be more applicational, I'd maybe we'd answer the question, what does the second commandment forbid? Like, what are some things that are forbidden from this commandment that, that flex what God allows regarding what we think about him, how we perceive him, conceive him, him of him? Let me give you a few things. One is, there can be no images of God, full stop. There can be no images of God in general. There can be no images of the Trinity at all. And the images of God in general, or the Trinity in particular, are forbidden. Some kind of triangle with a dove and other images only distort what God has forbidden. Now here's a, here's a second one, and maybe this one is harder to get, but think with me for a second. We actually not only must avoid images of God, we must be careful how we describe God even with our words. It is possible to create divine images with words and thoughts as if we can see God theologically. We have to be careful of that. The Puritans were sticklers for theological systems. The Puritans are our forefathers and mothers. They were sticklers for theological systems that imagined God at times in too much detail. An example would be even the way you put pressure on or try to flesh out what God as Father means. I'd be careful with that. Now, that's how God reveals himself. But in no way does that mean that God isn't somehow having male characteristics over and against female. God isn't limited by gender at all. Or, and you see, even in the PCUSA, the Protestant denomination, how rather than calling God Father, at times they alternate and called God Mother. Again, God didn't reveal himself that way. He didn't. What he said with words matters. We want to be careful about that. Even mental images in Scripture 
cannot fully incorporate the reality. We shouldn't play with divine images. Listen to the Westminster Larger Catechism. Listen to what it says. Question 109, here's the answer. The sins forbidden in the second commandment are the making of any representation of God, of all or any of the three persons. Note that. We'll get to that in a minute. What about Jesus? And then it says this, and this is in your notes. The, the, the making of representation of God either inwardly in our mind or outwardly in any kind of image or likeness of any creature whatsoever. So notice how the Westminster Confession, written hundreds of years ago, is not just talking about, hey, don't make a statue of God and put it on the table. Like, be careful with your mind. Guard your mind on this. So what about Jesus? What about that nativity scene you got in your yard? What about the, what about the show, The Chosen, or The Passion of the Christ? Did you know that Christians for centuries have debated these things? I would guess in most of our evangelical world, we don't even think of that. Any kind of resource that explains Jesus or we could give a video to somebody about Jesus, we would think would be good and fine. But not for all. This is a long debated issue in the church. We all can agree on careful of God the Father or the Trinity, but what about Jesus? In one sense, you might argue, and Christians have, Jesus was in the form of an image. That way, he wasn't just communicated with words. He may have been the word, but he was a physical form, meaning if you were living 2,000 years ago, guess what? You could have had dinner with him and seen his face. Jesus was an image that we could have seen with our own eyes. Yet in another sense, and he, this is just as important, Jesus was not forged by us. We didn't forge him. He was received by us. So how can we then make an image of him when one has already been made? The, long, the church's longstanding warning has been twofold. Number one, when you and I make images of Jesus, we domesticate him. We don't let him stand on his own two feet. We, we form him. And the second is that we misrepresent him. Now think of the Jesus films. Think of this fact right now. 35% of communication happens non-verbally. It's an eye contact. It's in body posture. It's in the tone of voice. It's not by words, it's by other things. So when you see Jesus on a movie, 35% of what's being communicated is coming from what? His tone. Do we know his tone? We have no idea. Was he like a gentle old kind of pacifist? Or was he kind of a John Wayne? What image do you have of Jesus? Do you, the, the flipping the table? One, or when he's getting slapped around and not putting up a fight. Which one do you hold in your mind? Is he every man's man? Jesus, the toughest man of all? Or is he kind of wimpy? With little Harry Potter glasses on, right? With his books. Kind of a nerd. Engineer major. Or is he a quarterback? 
a military soldier. What's in your mind about Jesus? If you're going to make a movie of him, what do you do? I mean, who do you pick to represent him? How about pictures? Is he long, flowing, blonde hair like I saw Jesus by the water fountain at first free for 18 years? A good Swedish Jesus? Maybe Norwegian. Let's be careful. Is that who Jesus is? How about the urban Jesus picture that's gone around for years? Hanging on a metal cross with a city in the background, like New York. And he's African-American. Is that, is that, I mean, in one sense, he represents all of those people. Is that Jesus? Did he really have blue eyes and look like Fabio? We don't have a picture of him. We just have words. The four Gospels. Do we need something more than those? When Jim Caviezel and Passion of the Christ would speak, every time he would speak, you are learning something from somebody about who Jesus is. Is that even accurate? Did you know that the main source behind the movie, The Passion for the Christ, was actually a second century gospel that's not even canonical? Now, you wouldn't probably read that for your home Bible study in your neighborhood, but I bet you watched the movie. How many things from that movie were communicated that have nothing to do with Scripture? How much of that was even historically accurate, let alone biblically accurate? To be completely honest, the Gospels don't tell us nearly as much. Like, we get one little scene of teenage acne Jesus, and then we're right into adulthood, right? So what do you do with all that? Was Jesus making tables with pops back in the day? How did he look at his mother? How did he speak? Was it with anger or was it with, 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 with compassion? We have no idea. Now, my supervisor in the UK, Richard Balkum is his name, a good Church of England Anglican. He is one of the world's foremost experts on the Gospels. Like if you were to say, pick five guys that would be experts on Jesus, I'm telling you, he'd probably be in your top three, not just your top five. How many Jesus movies do you think he's seen? The answer is zero. The guy wouldn't touch it with a 20-foot pole because he's like the only image of Christ that is worthy this is coming from a Jesus scholar who's been asked probably by every movie to contribute to the discussion of what was made and what happened. He's never seen any of them. Yet how many evangelicals, some of whom may have never even read all four Gospels, have an image of Jesus that comes from the chosen? Now you can see why someone like J.I. Packer would say to you, don't you dare watch The Chosen. Don't you dare watch the passion of the Christ. You know what you read? The four Gospels. Now, to be fair, this, is, this may be new for you. It may be something you've never heard before. Our Puritan forefathers and, and mothers debated this and talked about this and wrestled with this for centuries. But by the time we get into American evangelicalism with media and technology, missiology kind of eclipse all other doctrines. And the more Jesus we can get to people, the better. 
And that may not be wrong. It's certainly not bad intentioned. But it might not be careful enough when you think about the second commandment. Now, after, after listening not to my evangelical church at first free, remember, we had sweet as Jesus down there. It wasn't even in my evangelical seminary. It was my Anglican supervisor who would push on me about watching a Jesus movie. But ever since listening to his description and the animated way, this very pretty calm Englishman from Cambridge would flare up in anger every time he thought about Mel Gibson's movie. It's hard for me to ever see any image of Jesus on TV without thinking of the second commandment. Is it accurate even? How do I know it's true? If my supervisor, who's a world-renowned expert, doesn't know it's true, what's my mom going to think? Or my children? What about just Matthew and Mark and Luke and John? Isn't that enough? Doesn't that match what God did in the Old Testament? Here's my words. That's what I give you. Well, how about this even with the image of Jesus? In one sense, should we be making an image of Jesus when one still exists? That is, Jesus isn't gone. Jesus still exists. After his death and resurrection, what did he do? He ascended into heaven in physical, bodily form. And will one day come back again. So since Jesus has physically still the living image of God to be revealed at the second coming, should we make temporary ones as a substitute? Even if it's for teaching or explanatory purposes, should we? I don't think I need to be hard and fast on this today. If anything, I hope that you have at least heard how your brothers and sisters for the last many centuries have battled over this interpretive question, usually in good ways, though not without a few deaths along the way. Should we have images of Jesus even? You think J.I. Packer would have a nativity scene? No way. But most of us might. You think J.I. Packer would watch The Passion of the Christ? You can guarantee he didn't. But most of us probably have. Maybe that's a deeper question that's going to take some time for you to reflect. Maybe you discuss that in your families or even in your small group. But at least you should hear the risk involved. That if in any way those things have domesticated Jesus... They've made him look a little bit less other. Or, get this, and here's the biggest risk of those films. They got him wrong. Then you run from that as fast as you can run. At least for us, we should say that our presentation of God, even Jesus, should primarily be in word, especially as part of worship. And if images of Jesus are used in any way and there's a level of interpretive Christian freedom that you and I can have on those things, we don't have to agree on all that. There's questions. You can be sure that as a church, we would be just plain out wrong to do that as part of corporate worship. 
but that you have some freedom as a Christian to think about that in your own life and your own discipleship. All right, if that's what it forbids, what's it require? Well, well the obvious one actually is proper worship. Like we might not think of that. We might get stuck on idols and images the whole time, but the, the point of that was worship properly. Again, the Westminster can. A larger catechism says this, and it's going to sound like a church service, but this is what they argue should flow out of the second commandment. No images, no false things like receive from God, from his word. So what should that look like? Here's what they say. The duties required in the second commandment are the receiving, observing, and keeping pure and entire all religious worship and ordinances as God has instituted by his word. And then they list them, prayer, Thanksgiving in the name of Christ, reading and preaching and hearing of the word of God, the administration and receiving of the sacraments or ordinances. How about this? Church governance and discipline, the maintenance of the ministry of the church. Like you probably would just think of it as an image. No, do I have a stone thing with a couple jewels or not? But they're saying if you're doing the second commandment right, you're fully engaging in a healthy, word-described church function. In fact, right now, literally as I speak, we are obeying what the second commandment requires, that we give God's word, we flesh that out, we sing in Christ's name. We participate in all the elements of corporate worship. But more could be said. It's not just proper worship in the church. It's a life of proper worship. You know, not only was Christ the image of the invisible God, but do you know who else was made in God's image? Have you been raised in the church at all, been catechized? The very beginning of the biblical story, the very first chapter, just the 20-some verses in, God says, he made Male and female in his image. Humanity was made in the image of God to represent God, to relate with God. So then if you and I make another image, we're not only acting like God, which we cannot do, we're rejecting our very purpose. We were made to represent him. Our bodies and our lives should reflect proper worship in the Romans 12.1 sense. Paul says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That means our bodies, our collective body as the church, rightly images God to the world. Our love of God our love of neighbor, and our love of one another, so that literally, as Jesus says, people will see the difference in you and say, what is going on there? And you will say, it's not a what. It's a who, and his name is Jesus. Finally, the second commandment shepherds us to see that Christ is the perfect image of God and therefore must be the foundation and focus of our worship. Remember what I said about the Ten Commandments? They'll tell us something about God. If anything, what we sang already prefaced it, he is indescribable. It will tell us something about us, 
how God made us to image him, or how by our sinful fallen state we will want to contain him, control him, put him in a box that we can carry with us, have him on our iPhone in an app, put him on a film. It'll show us where our hearts will go. But third, the Ten Commandments, each of them point us to Christ. Look at that text, Colossians 1, that first verse, Colossians 1.15. He, by the way, is Christ. Christ is the image. There's that word. There it is. Remember, skim up to Exodus 24. You shall not make for yourself the carved image. Why? Because Christ is the image. And notice what it says, of the invisible God. It doesn't just say he's the image of God. Notice it says invisible, meaning he cannot be seen. And when God wants to reveal him, literally one called the Word, it is through Christ. Not only does Christ fulfill this commandment in his obedience, but he is God's image. The rest of Colossians 1 there, that text we have in your notes, speaks about how Jesus represents all God wants from the beginning of creation to the new creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Not just through him, but actually for him. When you have Christ, you've got the whole thing. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Christian worship, brothers and sisters, is based on Christ. It's focused on Christ. And notice how in the middle of this Christ-centered statement sits the church who knows Christ, who represents him in their very gatherings, and who worship him properly. While the world naively and even intentionally worships creation, God's people know the creator the center of all things, and worship him alone with reverence and appropriateness. So if I were to give some closing application for you, here's what I'd say. What what does the second commandment look like? First would be this, guard your minds. Don't, 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 Don't form an image of God with your imagination that goes beyond Scripture. A little wrist slap if needed. Wrist slap, don't go too far. Guard it. He is beyond. He is indescribable. Guard your minds. You will never go wrong when you let the word of God be where you cease and what you trust in. You'll never go wrong. Second, guard your worship. Guard your worship of God so that Christ is the focus and the gathered church is not forsaken. Literally, by obeying the second commandment, you come and worship with your brothers and sisters on the Lord's day. You are obeying the second commandment's mandate even right now by being here. 
And finally, guard your lives so that in your union with Christ, you may reflect the image of God for which you were created. Present yourselves as a living sacrifice in word and deed to a God who is indescribable. And it probably won't be a Jesus movie that your coworker gets the closest picture of Jesus. Probably won't be the chosen. You know what it'll be? It'll be his image bearers, the church, the Christians, who reflect the indescribable God in very practical, gospel, Christ-centered ways as they live their lives on behalf of King Jesus. As we close, let's, let's pray before we finish with a song that brings more honor and glory to Christ. Father, thank you for your word which ministers to us. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the way that you have presented yourself with such detail. Father, how even we, in our entrepreneurial ways, have thought we could reach more, we could impact more. We could make you clear as if somehow your word was insufficient, Father. As if the image of your son needed better acting and bigger budgets in production. As if somehow, Father, you weren't detailed enough when it comes to explaining Jesus. Even in our minds, Father, how we let them wander beyond what your word says. Father, help us to take serious your indescribable nature. Your holiness, as Greg so helpfully explained, that you are different and we worship a God who is invisible, made known only through the word, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you'd help our worship, even this closing song, be aimed at Jesus, be mediated by Jesus as your church. Thank you for your goodness. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.